I was meeting up with a, a member of the congregation this week and we were chatting and th this person said to me, you know, I'd, I'd love to get back to reading my Bible. I'd love to get closer to the Bible. I, I just am not sure how to go about it. I said, aha, have you heard of book by book? Um, and I, I, I told uh, this, this friend what, what it is that we do in book by book, that we simply read the Bible one book at a time or sometimes a, a couple of short books together. And we gather at the end of the month, some of us to, to talk about what God's been teaching us. And uh, th this person's gonna give it a go. So folks, if you're not sure what I'm talking about or what Neil meant when he said book by book, grab one of these brochures on your way out. They're, they're out there in the vestibule. It's really just a Bible reading plan that takes you through the Bible one book at a time. Um, it'll take us three years to, to go through it, but it's a, a lovely thing to, to read God's word and to make it the, the bedrock of our lives. One thing that you, you may have received, I hope you did on your way in, is our, our Colossians poster, which has on the back uh, Philemon. So we, I think that's the first time that we've had two, uh, two for the price of one. Um, keep an eye on that. I'm not really going to use the poster, but, but take it home with you and, and use it to guide your, your reading uh, in, in Colossians. As you know, the posters go very well with a, a, a little video, which we have, I think we've shown one or two of them over the months. Um, they're, they're worth a look to. So this evening, we, we come to this uh, book of Colossians. But before I, I come to Colossians, I want to revisit uh, some things that we thought about four months ago when I introduced you to the book of Romans. Uh, and the reason I do that, Romans was the first uh, New Testament letter that we read. Um, and I gave some, uh, some outlines, some, some guiding principles for how to read New Testament letters. Um, I wrote that stuff and I shared it with you. I thought I'd have a quick look at it and I realized, well, I don't remember it. So I'm not sure that I should expect that you did. Um, so what I'm gonna do is start for a few minutes uh, to remind you of some of those basic guidelines for reading New Testament letters, and then we'll fire on into Colossians. There are 21 letters in the New Testament from a variety of writers to a variety of audiences. And the first thing to say about them is that they're not all the same. They're not all the same type of letters. Some of them are true letters. So they weren't written to be a piece of literature. They weren't written for the public at large. They weren't written for posterity. They were written from one person to another or to a community. So they were a true letter. Some of the New Testament letters are what we call epistles, and that's a slightly more technical category. So they're artistic, it's a, a literary form. Uh, and these epistles were written to be used in public. So it wasn't just for that one person, but it was to, to be put on display before the public. Colossians, the, the letter we're coming to this evening, is one of those, it's an epistle. So once we've grasped this reality that they're, they're not all the same kind of letter, that brings us to a, a second key aspect of these letters. They're never, and this is, this is really hard for us, okay? 
I could tell you this till I'm blue in the face and it'll take us a while to get it. These are never theological treatises for the church at large. They're what the scholars call occasional documents. That's not too hard to understand. It, it simply means that they arise out of and that they're intended for a particular occasion. Okay? This is where it gets interesting, a third point. If, if they really are occasional documents written by a particular writer to a particular audience at a particular moment in time to address a particular situation, then we need to accept that we're not the primary audience. Paul's letter to the Colossians wasn't written to us. It wasn't written to the Western church at the beginning of the third millennium. It wasn't written to Christians in Bangor in 2022. It was written to a network of house churches in and around the city of Colossae somewhere in the early 60s AD. If we want to understand what Paul's writing and why he's writing it, we have to take that reality to heart. Now, one more thing about that. That does not diminish that Paul's letter to the Colossians comes as God's word to us. It is God's word to us in a particular way. One way I've heard this explained recently makes a good deal of sense to me, and that is that while Paul's letters weren't written to us, they are still God's word for us. Our job is to understand what God was saying through Paul to the primary audience who first received the letter, but then to take another step and to ask ourselves what, what he might be saying to us as we continue to hear his living word. So the New Testament letters, they aren't all the same. They're occasional documents. They weren't written to us. And let me offer one last comment to help you reading any New Testament letters. It's best to think of them as one half of a conversation. Whenever we read an epistle, we, we're getting one half of a conversation. It's, it's as though we're hearing the answer. If we're to fully understand the answer, we need to, we need to think about what the, the question might have been. Uh, maybe I'm losing you at this point. Imagine for a moment you're on the train going from Bangor up to Belfast and someone's phone rings and you're thinking, oh no, you're, you're not going to answer that. You're not going to sit. And, and they do. They answer the phone and you're in that situation where you hear one half of the conversation. What? Really? I can't believe it. Yes, I agree. That's exactly what you should do. That's all we hear. We only hear the one half of the conversation. But what our mind tends to do is it tends to take what we hear and, and try to work out what the other person has been saying. What's prompted this series of comments and these responses from the guy at our end? That's how we need to read Paul's epistles. We need to be asking ourselves, what is going on in Colossae that's prompted Paul to write in the first place? What's prompted him to say these particular things to this church at this moment in time? Whenever we read the letters like that, we're in a better position to understand Paul's intentions 
and then to, to understand what, what he was saying in the first instance, but also how this will be God's word for us just now. Okay. I shared some of this material with you four months ago when I, I first introduced you to the book of Romans. As I've been thinking about Colossians, I thought I'd share one, one more little thing about the letters in general. Paul's letters. Uh, Paul wrote 13 letters, uh, at least 13 that we have in the New Testament. And I was thinking, are they all the same? Is there any way of grouping them or classifying them? And it turns out that there is. The way they're classified actually in our Bibles is, is a very simple approach from the longest to the shortest. It, it doesn't really give us much, that classification. It just starts with the, the longest letter and, and groups them till the shortest. A more informative way of classifying them is chronologically in, in, in terms of Paul's life and ministry. And using that criteria, we can divide his letters up into three sections. First of all, we have his travel letters. These are the letters that he wrote as he was traveling or as a result of his travels. So first and second Thessalonians, Galatians, first and second Corinthians, and Romans. Then we get his prison letters written from his imprisonment in Rome. There are four, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And last of all, we get his pastoral letters that's the, the letters that Paul wrote to his, his assistant ministers, I suppose, Timothy and Titus, those who are being trained to be pastors. So on the basis of that classification, what we are dealing with this evening, this letter to the Colossians, comes out of Paul's prison letters. And to understand how we, we came to have a letter from prison in Rome to Colossae, we need to think for a moment about the background of that letter. Around about 58 AD, Paul left his base in Ephesus, uh, where it was like a, a ministry base to him. He traveled to Jerusalem, and he went there to deliver a collection which he'd been gathering as he'd traveled around the churches uh, of Macedonia and Achaia. Afterwards, he, his, his plan was to go to Jerusalem and then set out on, on a new phase of mission as he'd travel out west beyond, beyond Rome uh, and over right towards modern day Spain. You might remember that when he wrote the letter to Romans, this was what he had in mind. He was writing to a church he didn't know in Rome to introduce themselves to him so that he might almost recruit them as a sending church to send him on to Spain. Well, things didn't work out quite like that. When Paul went to Jerusalem, his presence in the city sparked a riot. People misunderstood him. They opposed his work. And he was taken into custody by the Roman officials. They held him for interrogation. It's several hearings and trials. His case was repeatedly delayed. So after two years, Paul did something he, he used a right that he had as a Roman citizen, and that is the right to appeal to Caesar, to be heard by Caesar. So he did, and he was taken finally to Rome where he spent two years as a prisoner waiting for trial. 
Now, if, if you think about Paul and what you know of his ministry, you'd imagine that this, this is a catastrophic thing. Paul is an itinerant church planter. He's nothing if he's not on the road to the next city to plant the next church and, and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see the, the city there radiate the gospel into the, the surrounding area. That's what Paul did. So you'd think that being locked up in a prison cell would, would be the end of him, would diminish his ministry. Not, not, not Paul. Paul didn't allow something as insignificant as being locked in prison to slow him down. While he was a prisoner, he continued his work just in a different way. And he started writing, started writing these prison letters, sent them out to these young communities of Jesus followers that he had planted throughout the empire. Uh, so the letters and the messengers that he sent became his, his new way of doing his work. During the time Paul had been in Ephesus, he had worked with a man named Epaphras. Epaphras was originally from the city of Colossae, about 100 miles east of Ephesus, so that's inland in modern-day Turkey. Paul sent Epaphras back to his hometown, to Colossae, to bring the good news about Jesus to Colossae, but also to two neighboring cities, Laodicea and Herapolis. And Epaphras did that with success. Epaphras was later arrested. He too was brought to Rome as a prisoner and it was there that he reconnected with Paul. He was able to tell Paul about what was happening in Colossae and the neighboring cities. So even though Paul had never been to Colossae, had never met the believers there, he, he was well known to them uh, as someone who had sent out Epaphras. And it's on this basis that Paul now writes to them. He's a respected leader. And he writes two letters to this church in Colossae and another to the church in Ephesus to teach them and encourage them. So there's the background to the letter Paul writes to Colossae. As, as we come now to the, the text itself, bear in mind what we said at the outset about reading New Testament letters. This is from a real pastor to real people responding to real situations in their real lives. In Paul's letter, we're hearing only one half of a conversation. We're hearing what Paul has to say to them, but we don't get to hear what what Colossae would have said to Paul or the report that Epaphras had given Paul about Colossae. We have, to, we have to try and surmise that or build a case from what we read in the letter. Let's, let's begin to look at this letter together. As you read the letter to Colossians, you'll see that Paul begins by encouraging the believers. That's, that's typical. In almost every one of his letters, Paul begins by encouraging the believers there. As soon as verse 7 of chapter 1, he, he has to explain his relationship with Epaphras because Epaphras, as we say, is the one who brought the message of the gospel to Colossae. But as we read on in the letter, we soon get a sense that this, Coloss this community 
is threatened by some of the same issues that Paul had to correct elsewhere. If you turn to chapter 2, there's a heading there at verse 16, freedom from human rules. This is the part of the letter where the, the issues from Colossae come to the fore. The Colossians, they're mostly Gentiles. But like the Galatians, they were being pressured to being circumcised, to keeping kosher, and to observe the Sabbath and other Jewish holy days. Paul addresses that issue in this letter. Some of the believers in Colossae, like the Corinthians, they, they were priding themselves on, on super spiritual experiences, having visions and getting secret spiritual knowledge. Paul addresses that issue too in this letter. One thing that appears unique to Colossians is that some of the believers there apparently thought that harsh treatment of the body could somehow liberate their spirits. Paul deals with that. If you look at verses 22 and 23, he addresses those issues too. So in, in that section, we get an idea of some of the particular issues that are unsettling the church in Colossae. What Paul does in this letter is the same as he does in every letter. He brings the gospel to bear on the particular issues in the community that he's writing to. He lets the gospel bring correction and help. In the case of the issues raised in Colossae, the Jewish law, hyper-spiritual, super-spiritual experiences and hyper-discipline, Paul sees a common thread. In each case, the believers in the Colossae were trying to add something. They're adding something to the salvation that they've already received when they believed in Jesus. So he wrote them a letter whose basic message is this. When you have the Messiah Jesus, you've got everything. In him, you're already complete. Many of us grew up on Warren Wearsby's little collection of commentaries. He's written commentaries on, I don't know how many, lots of books of the Bible. Each commentary has a, a, a two-word title. It's always be something. Well, his title for his Colossians commentary is be complete. Paul's calling the Colossians to see that if they're in Christ, they are complete. I'm going to take just a moment now to outline the contents of the book, and then I'm going to draw your attention to a couple of key passages. So first, the outline. We've already said that Paul needs to introduce himself as a friend of Epaphras there in chapter 1, verse 7. He explains to them that they're always in his prayers. He says how grateful he is for their faith. And then look at chapter 1, verse 15. He reminds them of the message they have believed, particularly talking about Jesus, this Son of God. He's made everything. He rules over everything. He's reconciling everything to God. There's a lovely irony here. Here you have Paul in a Roman prison cell. It would be easy for Paul and for anybody observing him to say, well, 
the big power in this world is Rome. It's the Roman Emperor. It's, it's that Roman Empire that spreads through so much of the known world. Rome rules the world. Not so, says Paul. The Son is the firstborn over all creation and all things, including thrones and powers or rulers or authorities. They were all created through him and for him. The true power in the world isn't Caesar's throne, but it's found in the Messiah's cross. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul explains that his own struggles and exertions are for their sake and for the sake of others like them to bring them to spiritual maturity. And then at chapter 2, verse 6, he challenges the Colossians to live their faith to the fullest. And this means don't be adding anything. Don't be adding anything to what Jesus has already done for you, but rather recognize that you already have everything in Christ himself. They have freedom from human rules. Uh, we've just noticed that section beginning at chapter 2, verse 16, uh, as the NIV heading puts it, freedom from human rules. And then in chapter 3, he encourages them to see themselves as people who have entered into a brand new way of life. It's a way of life where their personal character will be transformed and their community relationships will be transformed. Chapter 3, verse 18, guidance on how this is going to work out in their households. Towards the end of the letter, he stresses the, the prayerful, watchful attitude that they should have as they try to bring the message of the gospel to others. Paul shows a pastor's heart. This, this letter only has four chapters and nearly the whole of chapter four just deals with people. There's a focus here on individual people. He introduces Tychicus, who's carrying this letter to the believers in Colossae. He describes his other messenger whom he sent with Tychicus, the former runaway slave Onesimus, as a faithful and dear brother. He hopes that the community in Colossae will welcome him back as a fellow believer. We'll think about that for a couple of moments as, as we end. As well as introducing these two who are carrying the letter, Paul sends greetings from their friend and church planter Epaphras, who first brought the gospel to Colossae. He alerts the church that another of his co-workers, Mark, may soon be on his way to them. He exhorts their current leader, Archippus, to persevere in his duties. We mustn't miss this in Paul's letters. It's not incidental and it's not trivial. Paul's a real pastor, writing to real people about real issues. In this way, even in his imprisonment, he's continuing his work of spreading the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Let's go a little bit deeper on a couple of key passages to whet your appetite to read Colossians. If you turn back with me to chapter 1, the, the theological core of the letter, I think we can argue, probably falls in these verses from 15 
through to 23. The NIV gives this section the title, The Supremacy of the Son of God, to get a feel for what Paul is saying here about, about Christ's total supremacy. Count with me the number of times he talks about all or everything. Christ is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. Still verse 16. He is before all things, verse 17. In him all things hold together. Still verse 17. He has the supremacy over everything. Verse 18. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Verse 19, for through him and, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Verse 20. So Paul, just how important is Jesus Christ to you? Just how important is Jesus Christ to the gospel? To a person who's come to know the living God through him? He's everything. He's all of everything. That's the point Paul's making. In this next short section, verses 21 to 23, he includes the believers in Colossae in this great reconciliation project that Jesus has undertaken that he's described here. He says, once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Anyone who has come to God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ, has found their place in the cosmic reconciling work of Jesus. The work is his, and it's all about him, and it's all occurred for him. He is everything. He is all in all. Anyone who is in Christ doesn't need anything else. Not the Jewish law, not super spiritual experiences, not hyper-discipline. We don't need, ever need anything more of anything else. We need more of Christ. Folks, there's a sense in which everything that I've just said is true of the people in Colossae. It answers their questions. But we're in a position now to, to think about what issues Paul might see in our churches today and how he might address them. Where are those places where we're likely to be distracted from a sing, simple confidence in Jesus Christ to, to run after and look for other things? Well, well, the categories 
that, that Paul was addressing in Colossae, I think, still hold true. We're not bound by Jewish law. But I sometimes see signs of new forms of legalism creeping into our churches. I, I've seen it particularly in recent years in relation to gender roles in the church. I've seen people begin to try and create very rigid frameworks for what a truly Christian man is and what a truly Christian woman is. My sense is that they're overreaching very significantly from any teaching that I see in the word of God. Might we be adding something here that distracts from a simple confidence in Christ and the gospel? Super spiritual experience is a problem in Colossae. They've been a problem right throughout the history of the church. Around about the time I left here in the mid-90s to go and train as a, a minister, it was the Toronto blessing. Do people remember that? Yeah? Unsettled a lot of people, created a lot of problems in a lot of churches. A couple of weeks ago, I was chatting to a young fella here in our church told me he'd visited a, a local church recently and described scenarios exactly the same. People falling down, laughing in the faith, questions about whether that was authentic or whether there was manipulation here. Don't misunderstand me. I, I want us always to be open to the work of the Spirit. I long for God to bless us with more of His Spirit, to pour His Spirit on us. But I'm pretty sure I see at times an unhealthy running after experience when there could be a simple confidence in Christ, a completeness in Him. Hyperdiscipline was a problem in Colossae. We should be aware of that too. Over-investing over in any discipleship program that, that promises to be some sort of boot camp to turn us into an elite kind of Christian. Anything that increases our sense of reliance on ourselves and, and our training effect, uh, our energies, our efforts, and diminishes our reliance on, on Jesus Christ, his gospel and God's grace. That, that'll be foolish and dangerous. Paul is clear about it. In Christ, we are complete. We need, we need more of him. We need more of his spirit. So as you follow the argument of the letter, Paul warns us away from legalism, super spirituality, and boot camp Christianity. He invites us instead to stay rooted. Look at chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Sometimes when I've asked people to learn a memory verse from Colossians, this is where I've pointed them. After he does some of the theological work in the opening part of the, the book, the letter, he, he, he makes his basic point. His basic point is, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. You're already complete 
in Christ. So if you want to grow, if you want more, go for more of him. That's Paul's point in Colossians. Throughout the remainder of the letter, I I think what he's doing mostly is, is something like what he does in Galatians. In Galatians, he asks us, if you remember, to keep in step with the Spirit. Here in Colossians 3, verse 2, he he asks us to keep our minds, to set our minds on things above. He's asking us to live in the reality of this, this transformation, this fundamental change that we have lived as those who have been embraced by God's grace, who have experienced the gospel of Jesus, and who now live in the power of the Spirit. In chapter 3, he talks about the Spirit-empowered life, the Spirit-empowered transformation. I'd never really noticed this before, but I think our our Fruit of the Spirit series did it for me. In Galatians 5, he talks about this transformation in guarding terms. Do you remember? He talks about things that need to go. It's almost as though there were things that needed to be pruned out of our lives, a vice list, before the virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, that the Spirit's going to grow. So when he's writing to the Galatians, I don't know if he had insider knowledge. Are they a gardening kind of crowd? Maybe they were. So he gives them a gardening metaphor. Here in Colossians, he talks instead about clothes, about clothes that we we need to, to wear. First of all, he talks about the clothes that we need to take off, beginning in verse 5, the habits that need to be put to death. It's very like the vice list in Galatians 5. Then in verse 12, he talks about the qualities the Spirit wants to clothe us in. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I did an exercise. I compared the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 with what I'm calling now the clothes of the Spirit in in Colossians 3. There's significant overlap. Six of the, the, the list coincide. But, but each list has unique things as well. And to me, that shows me that, that neither list is supposed to be comprehensive or exhaustive and that they're simply illustrative of the ways in which the Spirit of God wants to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Paul wants the believers in Colossae to grow into a full maturity in Christ. Look at 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul wants people in Colossae who know that they're complete in Christ who are being completely transformed by the Spirit of Christ. That's what this letter's about. Okay, now that we've spent half our time in Colossians, we'll do another half on Philemon. No, two minutes. Philemon is the name of the gentleman in Colossae who's going to receive this letter. Onesimus, mentioned in the letter to the Colossians, is the person who will carry the letter 
to Philemon. The power in this letter lies in understanding very briefly their relationship. Onesimus is a runaway slave. Philemon's his master. In the Greco-Roman culture of the time, if your slave runs away, that crime is punishable by death. There's a huge drama here. For Philemon to come back to Colossae, to come back to Philemon, sorry, for Onesimus to come back to Colossae, to come back to Philemon with a letter in his hand, it is a moment of huge tension and drama. Paul's written the letter to Philemon, the slave master, and he's told him that he wants him to receive this slave, this runaway slave, back. Paul, in the letter, says three things. He says, don't, don't punish him as he deserves. But he moves beyond that. He says, don't take him back just as a slave and tolerate him. He says, welcome him back as a brother in Christ. This huge social barrier that ran down the middle of Greco-Roman culture, slave and free. Paul says, forget about that. Onesimus is your brother in Christ. Welcome him. Folks, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for Philemon to put the gospel into practice, to show whether it works or not. We don't know from reading the letter what Philemon did, whether he, he, he took Paul's advice, whether he, he was able to welcome Onesimus back in uh, the the traditions in the church tell us that he was, that Onesimus was welcomed back in, that he became a, a leader in the church himself. It, it's a wonderful letter to read straight after we've read Colossians. It's as though Colossians gives us the theory and then Philemon gives us a chance, to, like a case study to see, could this work? Could the gospel really make that kind of a difference in a real life. I think as you read Philemon, your question should be, could I see the gospel making that kind of a difference in my life, in the relationships I have, in the communities that I'm part of? I'll leave you to read it yourself. Let's join together and let's pray. Father God, as we read Paul's letter to the Colossians, we thank you for this part of your word that, that, that just clarifies things for us again about the absolute centrality of Jesus, the completeness of his work, and the truth that we need nothing more than him. We need not more of other things. We need more of Jesus. Lord, we thank you how Paul shows us that a, a, a proper confidence in Jesus, a proper reliance in the gospel rules out our running after other things, our being drawn 
and distracted in other directions. Lord, we pray that we'd be people who read this message and take it to heart. And Lord, that, that idea from the letter to Philemon, that idea that the gospel needs to change real things, real relationships, I pray that for us. For our families. For this church family. Lord, we're all part of relationships that do not show the glory of the gospel. They're the kind of relationships that anybody could be in people who don't know or claim to follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that this part of your word would do some work in us, that it would work for the transforming of our relationships. We pray it in Jesus' name.